If you're like me, one of the movies I enjoy seeing and re-seeing is the movie Apollo 13. Apollo 13 tells the, the real-life story of the 1970 Apollo launch that was intended to go to the moon. But two days into the flight, something went terribly wrong when a rupture in the oxygen tank damaged the spacecraft. And instead of being able to land on the moon, the mission now changed to a desperate effort at survival. The crew had to preserve their last bits of power and oxygen for the final moments of re-entry into the atmosphere. And so they used the lunar module as a lifeboat while the NASA engineers who were back on Earth tried to figure out some way that they could survive and return to Earth safely. The astronauts had to shut down the command module to save power for re-entry. Then they had to figure out how to restart it on just 12 amps of electricity. As one of the NASA engineers said, that's less than it takes to power a vacuum cleaner. But while the drama is unfolding in space, the NASA team is working furiously to solve the problem. The challenge is they have to trim everything that is not absolutely necessary to get down to an absolute essential functions. Otherwise, the crew is going to die in space. Good news is they made it. But the message was clear. Sometimes success is only possible by trimming away all the extras and identifying that which is absolutely essential. A lot of families are discovering that today in the financial realm. Some people are doing very well, but there are others who are struggling in today's economy, cutting costs, discovering what they really need to live on. Sometimes success is only possible by trimming away all the extras and identifying that which is absolutely essential. In the last recession, you remember businesses and organizations were trimming back as far as they could in order to try to survive the downturn in sales and receipts, even churches. You may remember many were forced to cut staff in order to get through the downturn. Tithes and offerings were going, going down. One pastor of a large church told me that actually in one sense it was a good experience for their church because... It forced them to analyze their situation to discover what people and programs were absolutely central for them and then which ones were peripheral to their main mission. Sometimes success is only possible by trimming away all the extras and identifying that which is absolutely essential. So is there a message there for us as preachers? The message is this. In an increasing an age of increasing secularization and declining discipleship, when students and young adults are abandoning the church in droves, while we too often try to maintain the status quo and preserve the past, we just can't play games anymore. We have to identify what's essential. And that's true of our preaching. God has said it is through the foolishness of preaching that people will hear. Sometimes, though, we get locked on the foolishness part and not the preaching. We're past the day when we can play games with preaching. We can no longer preach to entertain or to maintain or to sustain dying structures and dated programs. 
Sometimes success is only possible by trimming away all the extras and identifying that which is absolutely essential. In preaching, we must get down to what is essential. And so what is that? What's essential in our preaching? When we trim away all the non-essentials, what is the primary focus of our preaching? Just one thing, Christ. We must preach Christ. Now, why is it so urgent for us to preach Christ? Well, we find the answer in the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Join me as we read from Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, as Paul speaks of Jesus Christ. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Why do we preach Christ? We preach Christ because he alone is sufficient to meet every need. Now, why is it that Christ alone is sufficient to meet every need? Well, first of all, it's because Christ shows you who God is. He shows you who God is. There are a few passages in all of Scripture that are more majestic than these verses in Colossians 1 because they paint a vivid portrait of a God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. Why is Paul offering this picture of God? Well, in the preceding passage that came before this, he told the Colossian Christians of his prayers for them, that they may walk worthy with the Lord, that they may be strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might. Then it is almost as if Paul pauses and thinks and says, you don't have any idea how much power I'm talking about, do you? You have no conception of how big God is. My sons are now 23 and 19. I remember when they were small. I remember when they thought that $10 was a bunch of money. <laughs> Unfortunately, as they get older, they don't think that anymore. For them, $100 would have been an amazing amount of money. For, for them, $1,000 would have been an incredible treasure. Imagine if I had a million dollars in my pocket. Now, that takes a good imagination. But, uh, <laughs> and suppose I invited one of those uh, sons, young, youngsters, to ask me for money. Any amount they would like. They might ask for $10 or $100. Even $1,000, that would seem like a vast sum beyond their imagination, never realizing I had much, much more to be able to give them. 
That's what it's like when we think of God's power and God's glory. Whatever we can imagine, God is so much more. And that is the God who comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Phillips translates that word image as visible expression. Jesus is God shown to us in a way we can see him. But Paul wants us to make sure we understand that just because God has allowed us to see him in Christ, that does not mean that God's power can be measured in earthly terms. No. In Christ dwells all the power and glory of God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And here the term firstborn does not mean birth order, but it implies superiority. Christ is over and above all of creation. He is preeminent over every created thing. Christ helps us see a bit of this God who is beyond our comprehension. Christ shows us who God is as creator. Paul writes in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, if it exists, God created. What does it mean that Paul says, for by him all things were created? It means that Christ was the active power in creation, planning and shaping the entire created order. He is the architect, the construction crew, and the interior designer. He is the animating and energizing force of creation. Creation happened through the power and ability of Christ. Now, for those of you that have young children, I could ask, do you have any Legos in your house? Some of you may have had them at one time. We, we used to have a bunch of Legos in our house. They probably are still tucked away somewhere. Those little building blocks in varying sizes and shapes, and you could use them to create a, a house or a ship or robot, or the Death Star, depending on how many Legos you might have. My guys, you know, you can, you can do whatever you wanted to. My guys tended to stay pretty close to the directions, kind of watching, reading what they were supposed to do and putting them all in the right order. But when Jesus sat down to make it all, there were no blocks to connect. He created the building blocks of creation. He created the atoms and the molecules from nothing. He conceived of DNA and shaped that double helix all by himself. There were no directions to follow. He wrote the directions. He designed the created order in his own omnipotent imagination. He conceived of stars and planets. He shaped them and hung them in place in a universe that served as his canvas. He crafted the earth with special care. For he knew that one day he would make a people to love and to lead. And one day he himself would take on flesh and walk on the ground he created. He invented trees because he knew that one day he would be a young man who would use that wood as a carpenter, learning to make chairs and tables. But he also knew that one terrible day he would hang on such a tree, paying a ransom caused by our sin and our rebellion. He created us. He gave us life. He made it all. It is all his. All of creation bears his imprint and carries his signature of authorship. But Paul says creation is not only by him, it is also for him. That means, as Rick Mellick has observed, Jesus is the goal of all creation. 
Everything exists to display his glory. And ultimately, he will be glorified in his creation. Jesus is the central point of creation. And he rules over it. But not only is Christ the animating force behind creation, he is also the sustaining force behind it all. That's why Paul says in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only did Christ create all that is, not only does he have preeminence over the entire created order, but he is himself the power that sustains creation. In him all things hold together. He is the one who creates, and he is the one who enables the creation to continue. He created the laws of physics that manage the movement of stars, planets, and cosmos. He created the balance that allows nature and living things to adapt and survive. Have you ever thought about what a miracle it is that plants make pollen and that winds and bees carry that pollen to other plants to make it possible for them to produce the food that enables us to survive? That is a miracle of creation that happens every day. And it all originated in the mind of Christ. So the next time you eat an apple, thank the creator who came up with the plan to make it possible. In him, all things hold together. Have you ever heard someone say, what's life all about? The answer is Jesus. It is all about Christ. He is the originator and sustainer and purpose of it all. It is his work. It is by him and for him. He crafted it, he shaped it, he is the purpose of it. No wonder we preach Christ. We preach Christ because he alone is sufficient to meet every need. And that includes showing us who God is as creator. But in addition to that, Christ shows who God is as redeemer. Not only did Christ create everything that exists, not only does he sustain the creation by, the, by his own power, he also has redeemed his people from the terrible price that was caused by their own sin and rebellion. And ultimately, he will redeem the creation itself from the scars and chaos caused by human sin. I do find it interesting that when Paul begins to talk about Christ as redeemer, the first thing he says is he is the head of the body, the church. That is, Christ not only redeemed us with his own blood, but he has, he has created the church, the body of Christ, to be the ongoing instrument of his redemptive power. Your church and my church are to be in the business of redemption. Our churches are not here for the purpose of preaching or worship or Bible study or dinner on the grounds or anything else. We exist to be a redemptive tool in the hands of Christ, sharing the love of Christ, drawing people into his family. Your work and my work is the work of reconciliation. We do all of those other things, including preaching, not because they are the primary mission, but because they are the tools by which Christ uses us to achieve his mission, which is redemption. Christ is all about redeeming what was lost. And if we want to be on his team, if we want to be used for his glory, then redemption must be your mission and my mission. And so Paul explains, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So just as all things were created by Christ, so all things will be reconciled through him. The creation itself has been marred, tainted by the corruption of sin. But in the redemptive work of Christ, that creation will be reconciled. It will be set right. It will be restored to its original intention. Through the shedding of his own blood in payment for our sin, Christ reconciles us to God. And ultimately, not only us, but the entire creation. And so just as he acted as creator, Christ acts as redeemer. And how does this redemption take place? The text literally says, through the blood of his cross. Jesus took upon himself the price of sin. He bore the wrath of God toward our sin, knowing that we could not. And with the blood of his cross, he purchased our redemption and ultimately that of all creation. The most amazing act of creation was when Jesus created a path of reconciliation back to God through his own sacrifice on the cross. That is the only message we have to preach. Christ and his cross. Wherever we may be in God's word, we always preach in the light of Christ's redemptive work. Do you preach about stewardship? Remember that biblical stewardship is rooted in the creative, redemptive work of Christ. Do you preach about justice? Remember that there is no justice apart from the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. Do you preach about discipleship? Remember that we can be disciples but only because of what Christ accomplished through the blood of his cross. Whatever the theme, we always preach in the shadow of the cross. We preach Christ because he alone is sufficient to meet every need. He shows us who God is, both as creator and redeemer. And yet not only does Christ show us who God is, in addition, Christ shows us who we are. Why do we preach Christ? Well, one major reason is he shows us who God is, but also vital is that he shows us who we are. In this paragraph of Paul's letter, he's reminding the Christians at Colossae, what their life was like before they knew Christ and how it had changed through their faith in Christ. What is life apart from Christ? Paul says in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He uses two different terms here. The first is alienated or alienation. The word means to be excluded or estranged, to be like a foreigner in a strange land. Have you ever gone to some event where you didn't know anyone? And you stood there and you watched everyone engaged in their conversations. Everyone else seems to know each other except you. And you felt lost and alone and alienated. That's a little bit of the flavor of what Paul is suggesting here. Apart from Christ, we are alienated from God. We are estranged. We're distant. We're separated. There may be just a few of you in this room, like me, old enough to remember that old Three Dog Night song. One is the loneliest number. That's where all of us are apart from Christ. We are lost and alone by our own doing, alienated by sin from a God who loves us. And there is nowhere on earth or in the universe that is a worse place to be 
than alienated from God. The book Jesus Manifesto tells about a billboard in Oklahoma that reads, Eternity is hell without Jesus. But in truth, every place is hell without Jesus. The rich Carlton is hell without Jesus. A church is hell without Jesus. There is no hope in this life or in this world apart from Christ. And so Paul says, before Christ, we were alienated from God. But there's another phrase he uses. He says that before Christ, we were hostile in mind. Literally, you were an enemy of God in your mind, in the way you thought. And that resulted in doing evil deeds. One translation puts it, your thinking was all against him. One of the results of sin in your life, in my life, is it impacts the way we think. And that impacts the way we live. Apart from Christ, your thought patterns are hostile to God. Your thoughts and attitudes are at odds with him. You are disposed toward evil rather than good. That's why religion alone is not enough to set things right. You don't simply need to add something on to what you already are. You need a complete change of mind and heart. You don't need a pacemaker. You need an entirely new heart. You don't just need some additional thoughts. You need a mind transplant. And that only happens through the transforming work of Christ in our lives. No wonder that Jesus said, you are to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can't love God with your mind when your thoughts are enemies of God. That can only happen when you receive a new mind, the mind of Christ. Before Christ, you and I were alienated. We were enemies of God. And that is a terrible place to be. But there is good news coming. So we preach Christ because he alone is sufficient to meet every need. He shows us who God is. He shows us who we are apart from Christ. But here's the good news. Christ shows us who we can be. He shows us who we can be. We preach Christ because he is sufficient to meet every need. Not only does Christ show us who God is as creator and redeemer, he also shows us who we are apart from him, alienated, enemies of God in our thoughts, our attitudes, and our deeds. But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us there. He helps us understand there is one more amazing thing that Christ does for us. He helps us see who we can be. And better yet, he does a transforming work in our lives through his, trans through his sacrificial death on the cross. Picking up again in verse 21, he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What does Paul mean by his body of flesh? It's a phrase that refers to Christ's human body, his earthly physical existence. Paul is reminding the Colossian believers that Jesus was not just a spiritual being who appeared to suffer and die. He was fully human, incarnated in flesh and blood. And it is in that death on the cross that Jesus brought about reconciliation. As he spent those agonizing hours in which he paid the price for our sin. But too often when we talk about the cross... We emphasize the physical pain. We neglect the heart of what really happened on the cross. When Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden 
and said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. It wasn't just fear of physical punishment that he was talking about. Many believers have faced brutal death as martyrs for the faith. It would be foolish to say they were braver than Jesus. No. What Jesus knew was coming on the cross was not simply physical torture, but far worse. The wrath of God towards sin was to be poured out on him, entirely on him. The cup that he sought to avoid was the cup of God's wrath towards sin. He who knew no sin was to have the impact of the world's sin poured out on him as God's righteous wrath exacted the just penalty for that sin. That is the cup that Jesus saw coming. And though he knew and dreaded what it would cost, that is the cup that he willingly accepted in order to ransom us from eternal death. Because he paid that price on the cross, he accomplished what was needed, as Paul says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because of the cross, he made it possible for you and me to stand before God one day, holy and blameless and above reproach. Is that because we are those things? No. It's because Christ is all those things. And he holds you in his arms. And he takes you into the presence of the Father. And when the Father asks if you are worthy to enter into his holy presence, Jesus reaches out nail-scarred hands and says, I have paid the entry fee for him. And when the Father asks if you have the proper attire to enter into eternity, Jesus will say, I have clothed him in my righteousness. From alienation to acceptance. From enemy of God to adopted child. That is what Christ makes possible through his precious blood on the cross. That is the hope of the gospel which Paul preached, which we preach, and which you and I are privileged to teach others to preach. We preach Christ because he alone is sufficient to meet every need. He shows us who, Christ, who God is. He shows us what we are apart from Christ. He shows us what we can be in Christ. The story is told about a brother in a monastery who was assigned to preach. All the brothers came into the chapel and they found the lights off. The brother who was supposed to preach lit a candle. He took that candle and held it up to the crucifix. There he illuminated the thorn-crowned brow. He illuminated the pierced hands and the feet. And after doing so for a few seconds, he extinguished the candle and dismissed the audience. He said it was a sermon on the love of Christ. And so it was. Our calling and our challenge, our privilege, is to lead people to the cross. We preach Christ because he is sufficient. He alone is sufficient to meet every need. Why do we preach Jesus? Because he is the only message worth sharing. Because he is all we have and all we need. As Gardner Taylor said of Jesus, he is light for darkness, strength for weakness, peace for confusion, hope for despair, bread for the hungry, water for the thirsty, and at last, the way to a taller town than Rome and an older place than Eden. So preach Jesus. Preach Jesus 
For it is in Christ alone that we find the answer to every question worth asking. In Christ alone, we find life in a dying world. In Christ alone, we find hope now and forevermore. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do not deserve what you did for us. We do not deserve the price that Christ paid. But oh, how thankful we are because you have given us all that we need. Help us to share that good news with others and help us in the work of equipping others to share that good news. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.